Live from WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. A conversation with Evanston mayoral candidate Daniel Biss. I'm confident in saying that we can be spending less on the police than we currently are. The job cost of the abolished Greek life movement during the pandemic. If this movement goes through, there's going to be a huge impact for our uh, company and for our employees. And a look at how COVID-19 is leading students to switch up post-grad plans. I definitely am looking forward to a little bit of catch-up time of a social life in my early 20s. Those stories tonight. WNUR News is back this quarter to bring you more campus and local news, arts and entertainment, and oddities every Monday and Friday evening. Last week's presidential inauguration of Joe Biden allowed many American voters to take a breath. But for Evanston residents, the election rush isn't over. With Evanston's municipal primaries less than a month away, WNUR News takes a closer look at the mayoral candidates. This week, former state Senator Daniel Biss. Alex Harrison reports. Although state and federal races are finished, election season isn't over for Evanston yet. The mayor, clerk, and all nine aldermanic seats are up for grabs in the upcoming municipal elections. On January 21st, I spoke with former state senator and candidate for mayor Daniel Biss. Interviews with the other two candidates, Lori Keenan and Sebastian Knowles, will be broadcast soon ahead of the primary on February 23rd. This is a shortened version of the interview. The full version can be heard on WNUR News' Spotify, Apple Music, and other streaming platforms. If you could introduce yourself uh, with your name, your age, uh, and what ward of Evanston you live in. All right, my name is Daniel Biss. Uh, I am 43 years old, uh, and I live in the sixth ward of Evanston. Evanston continues to have uh, deeply rooted disparities in, in resources and support from the city government, and particularly in the city's communities of color and wards like the second, fifth, eighth, and ninth. Um, and this has led to uh, a fairly sizable number of residents being wary or, or distrustful uh, of efforts from the city to rectify these disparities. Um, as mayor, how, how would you help these communities grow and strengthen and how would you earn that trust back in, in the city government? Well, you have to take seriously the slogan that we assess every decision through an equity lens. And so I think we need to do a few things. We need to have a true citywide process, I think quite likely with an outside consultant that specializes in this work, to have a public process, series of discussions that we utilize to establish clear definitions and metrics about what actually equity means. Have clear line of responsibility. Have, for example, someone inside of government, at least half of whose job is to implement our equity plan. Have a person designated inside each of the city's departments to be responsible for implementing uh, the city's equity plan in those departments. Putting a level of concreteness and clarity around all this stuff so that it's not just a, a, a sort of high level value, but a concrete thing that we do on a daily basis is really, really critical. Uh, I think there's a lot of specific things that, that need to be changed. I mean, one, one example that I think really, really is obvious is, you know, things like equity in services, like, like equity in uh, lead testing of water to ensure that all communities have equal uh, confidence about the safety of the water they're drinking. Basics about infrastructure, right? So, so if you were to do an audit of all the sidewalks in Evanston, you would find that sidewalks are in worse shape in the fifth ward than in the sixth ward. 
And that impairs safety of older adults to walk and be mobile. It impairs neighborhood cohesion. It's a thing that sounds small, but is in fact big. But the other way you rebuild trust is to bring people in the door to be a part of the decision-making process very early on, right? Don't wait for the, the up or down vote to be happening in 25 minutes and then have uh, people speak at public comment at city council after we already know what's gonna happen. That's, that's fine, but it doesn't solve the problem of people not feeling heard. Uh, to solve the problem of people not feeling heard, you have to invite them in the door in advance while the policymaking process is in its early stages. And then they have to see that their voices matter. So the wider impact of COVID has been the economic disruption and the precipice and balance that uh, people have had to be making, um, both in terms of you know, small businesses in the community and also just in terms of, of working class residents. Uh, and, and Evanston, uh, more in general, has uh, already you know, historically had a, an affordable housing deficit, among other things. And, uh, and numerous, numerous residents now continue to sit on kind of that financial edge as we wear on through um, whatever shape recovery we happen to be in right now. Um, how do you see Evanston helping relieve these, these short-term disruptions and, and also strengthening support for these uh, vulnerable citizens more permanently going forward? Yeah, it's really terrible. And I, I would add to the uh, very uh, critical and accurate description you give of the economic uh, pain uh, that there's been serious social consequences too. Uh, real isolation, especially for older adults and kids. Uh, it's, this, is, this has been very, very harmful. Um, I, I think that we have a lot of different tracks that we've got to act on. Part of it is just getting dollars in people's hands and small businesses' hands as fast as possible. And quite frankly, uh, that's, those are dollars that are not going to primarily come from the city's budget. So that has to be done in, in collaboration primarily with the federal government. Um, I also want to stress that you know, the city can, make, can uh, in, enact mitigation measures. You know, for instance, when the, when, the, when the pandemic began, there was a 60 day shutdown, a 60 day moratorium on things like water shutoffs. Uh, I think we need to be looking at policies like that. Uh, just to make sure that the city itself through its policies isn't further uh, imperiling families who are economically living on the edge. Um, and then, uh, you know, I just think that you mentioned, and it, it can't be overstated, uh, housing is a key, key part of this. And there's so much we need to do on the question of affordable housing through our uh, inclusionary zoning, inclusionary housing ordinance, through uh, reining in exclusionary zoning, through partnerships that bring in significant additional subsidy, working both with Cook County and the Illinois Housing Development Authority and especially the federal government. There's just a lot that must be done on, on housing. And I think the city needs to prioritize that because we have a real affordability. Um, a generous word would be problem and a, a blunter word might be crisis. Obviously, Northwestern is a very central and critical part of the city, but some residents have raised concerns about uh, the university's influence over uh, town you know, politics and activities, as well as investment from the university in uh, the city, whether that be um, actual and, you know, literal investment or just paying taxes. Um, where do you see, uh, to kind of use a, a, a kind of turn of phrase, the town-gown relationship uh, between Evanston and Northwestern uh, going? Well, it's really important. I, I would, you know, maybe this is a pipe dream, but I would always uh, love to just turn the heat down a little bit 
you know, uh, I think the problems are real and important. I'll get to them in a second, but I, I do think it's important to name that we do need each other, right? There's no question that Northwestern needs Evanston. The, the school is not going anywhere. And, and if Evanston isn't doing well, that's harmful to Northwestern in very concrete ways. At the same time, I think that we need Northwestern, um, that, that for all the challenges that come with having as a neighbor, a giant um, university, the university brings people and um, cultural and intellectual vitality and, um, you know, frankly, a lot of taxpayers and economic activity too. So, so you know, I think, I think it's helpful not to view the relationship as black and white. Um, but I, I do think that some of the concerns that people raise about Northwestern are totally legitimate. So for example, um, Northwestern not only is exempt by the Illinois constitution from paying property tax, but additionally, they are, you know, continually buying up more and more property and taking more and more property off the city tax rolls. Um, I, I think that people feel some frustration. You look at peer private institutions in other parts of the country, and a lot of them make payments in lieu of taxes or pilots that are, are much larger than the amount of money that uh, Northwestern pays to Evanston. And I think that Northwestern asks for a lot from Evanston, which is normal and appropriate. They're giant institution doing a lot of stuff, but they ask for things around variances and around zoning and, and around permitting, especially around events. And, and, you know, I think that in the moments that Northwestern comes to the city with these requests, we just need to be prepared to say, listen, we also have some needs from you. And let's sit down at the table and hammer out a better deal that works for you, that works for us. You know, I, I will approach that relationship in a spirit of uh, neighborliness and collaboration and also with the view that Evanston has the right, I think, to have a greater degree of expectation from Northwestern uh, than we've typically had and, and to hopefully have those expectations met. Turning now to policing and, and public safety in general, in a, a top-down view as best as you can with, with a, a subject as broad as this, um, what, what needs do you see in Evanston um, with regards to policing, uh, with regards to specifically EPD, um, both in like a, a practice and a, a philosophy kind of lens. My view is that a police officer is a very specialized type of city employee, has powers that no other city employee has, um, has powers that in my view, unfortunately are necessary in some circumstances, but also has powers that in my view are inappropriate for a lot of circumstances. And to me, the challenge is that over the course of the last really 50 years in American life, we have massively cranked up the number of problems to which we've decided that the solution is a guy with a gun. And so what I would believe in doing is doing a full audit of what all the Evanston Police Department is engaged in with the goal of saying, what are the things that we in fact believe the police is currently doing that in fact, yep, those are things that we really want police with this training and this equipment and this set of legal uh, capabilities to go address. On the other hand, what are some things that we think that somebody else would better address? Uh, things like mental health crises, substance abuse challenges, and more. And then third, is there an intermediate category of things that we'd like to see a police officer and someone else jointly address? Like for instance, uh, are there situations where someone is experiencing a mental health crisis and simultaneously might be a danger to themselves or others and you would like a co-response model of a police officer and a mental health uh, care worker to arrive together? And I, I think we're talking about a massive philosophical shift in how we think about public safety. Uh, and it's going to need to be done um, meticulously and carefully and uh, thoughtfully, um, which means not fast in the sense that we shouldn't expect to 
swear me in as mayor in May and be done with this project by August. On the other hand, we're going to have to move swiftly to get to a place where the actual changes ever uh, can come into effect. And so I think this is going to be a really critical focus of the next four years. Kind of the, the big money question, where do you see kind of the, tr the the size of the police department needs to go? Do you, do you see um, defunding or, or reduction in size as necessary? Um, or do you think that those other solutions that we've talked about with you know, building resources outside of it, do you think that will be enough without a, an explicit reduction? Well, you know, as I've indicated, I think it's really important to do a community-wide audit of what all the police are doing uh, and, and really come to a determination of what they do and don't need to be doing among that before you, you put a number on this. And I think it'd be really irresponsible to put a number on this. What I do think is very clear is that we're asking the cops to do a lot of stuff that should be asked of somebody else, that it is not fair to the police to ask them to do. It's not their core training uh, and that it winds up creating both distrust and a lower quality of service provided to the community. And so as a result, I'm confident in saying that we can be spending less on the police than we currently are um, because that's, that's, that's a sort of qualitative fact that's visible to me. Uh, but the quantitative assessment of what is the exact right number is one that I think it would be a real mistake to pretend I could give you with, with confidence at this moment. From Evanston, this is Alex Harrison, WNUR News. This Friday, reporter Olivia Lloyd sits down with local activist Lori Keenan, and reporter Maria Aragon interviews 20-year-old candidate Sebastian Knowles next week. Next up, a look at how the abolished Greek life movement at Northwestern has led to the loss of over two dozen jobs. Reporter Angelina Campanile speaks with current and previous Greek life cooks to examine the economic and emotional toll of the movement amidst the pandemic. It smells really good in here. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right. One, two, three. Carlos Reyes is sauteing potatoes for Sunday brunch. Girls wake up to a whiff of syrup and freshly brewed coffee coming from the kitchen. Let's see. Uh, we got pancakes. We got some scrambled eggs and potatoes. And it looks really good. I'm excited. <laughs> Sophomore Dana Small lives in the Kappa Delta sorority house at Northwestern University, where Carlos Reyes prepares her meals. Carlos and his kitchen assistant, Maria Garcia, currently cook for all the sororities on campus out of the Kappa Delta kitchen. Usually more than two people are responsible for feeding all sorority members living in their houses, but the coronavirus pandemic and the abolished Greek life movement at Northwestern have led hundreds of students to deactivate from sororities and fraternities since last March. Reyes sees every deactivation as one step closer to losing his job. We support, you know, to keep like the resistance life because I probably we lose my job too, you know, and I think it's very important for the Greek life to, to keep on. I have to support my family and I have a daughter in college too right now. So it's going to be biggest concern right now. The abolished Greek life movement at Northwestern stems from the Black Lives Matter movement following the death of George Floyd last May. Students are calling on chapters to disband and ultimately eliminate Greek life at Northwestern. This is after sexual harassment and or assault allegations against both fraternities and sororities, in addition to reports of sexism, classism, and racism among Greek life. If these sororities close, 
not necessarily because of COVID, but because of this movement. What does that mean for the workers? Do they lose their jobs? Do Carlos and Maria lose their jobs? What then? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We all lose the job, including myself. And I know if this movement goes through, there's going to be a huge impact for our uh, company and for our employees. Martin Romero is the district manager for Campus Cooks, the food service specifically for fraternities and sororities at Northwestern. He's been in charge of feeding students living in Greek housing on campus for the past 14 years. I have to say this is the worst uh, uh, year we ever have as a company. Romero says Campus Cooks typically employs one chef and one kitchen manager per sorority or fraternity. Over the past year, Romero has gone from overseeing 30 cooks to four. I mean, before in each uh, chapter, before the pandemic, we used to feed between 40 and 50 people in each chapter. Now, Kappa Delta and Alpha Chi Omega have the highest number of live-in members at 11 each. So right now, your jobs are resting on the fact that Kappa Delta has to recruit enough girls to live in the house for next year. And how many girls does that have to be? How many mouths do you have to feed in order to have cooks in the house? Well, uh, the minimum uh, amount is going to be between 25 and 30. For next year? For next year. That's a lot more than everyone right now. Yeah, than everybody right now. Uh, In another chapter, we have only five people uh, per chapter. Five people per chapter wasn't enough to keep Leo Gutierrez employed. Gutierrez is his family's primary source of income. There was a lot of uncertainty, he says. He didn't know when students would return to campus or if and when he would get his job back after the onset of the pandemic. All he knew was his job was going to be affected. Gutierrez worked for Campus Cooks for more than 10 years. He lost his job in March after Northwestern students learned they would not be returning to campus for spring quarter. Gutierrez was under the impression he would return in fall, only to learn not enough students would be living in Greek houses and he could no longer rely on campus cooks for income. I was scared because I have a family. I have a four-year-old son. Gutierrez realized the odds were against him and applied for a job at Chipotle, where he worked before Campus Cooks. He is now working two jobs. I think that's a dang shame. It's always bad whenever somebody loses their jobs. I don't know that there's perhaps a way to make it right. Jack Izzo is a second-year journalism student. He deactivated from the Sigma Nu fraternity over the summer. Izzo says his decision was influenced by the Black Lives Matter movement and the Abolish Greek Life Instagram page. I believe that Northwestern should be giving these people um, adequate compensation or other jobs in return. Um, because it's well, really they're not, not employed by Northwestern. Yeah, that, that was, that's what I figured. Mm-hmm. Um, really, the only way to say it is that that just absolutely blows. Is there a better way to do this? Like, does the movement outweigh... Uh, their job? What do you think? I think the movement does outweigh their job, but I also think that there needs to be solidarity. There needs to be some form of compensation, whether that's financial or whether that's... Who's the compensation from? I don't know. 
It's a very, it's a very, it's a very tricky situation, obviously. I asked Martin, Leo, Carlos, and Maria whether they've ever been subject to the claims made by abolished Greek life advocates such as sexual harassment, racism, sexism, classism, etc. All four said no. I think that everyone always treats each other with respect, Maria says. I feel good, and if it wasn't for the respect, I probably wouldn't be working here. This is a fountain, working fountain for everybody, for a lot of employees and campus cooks. I feel like if the Greek system come back in a full swing next year, there's going to be a job for everybody. Carlos Reyes and Maria Garcia will continue to saute potatoes and serve Sunday brunch in the hopes they'll be able to do the same exact thing the following week. For WNUR News, I'm Angelina Campanile. In the shadow of a pandemic-driven recession, some students are reevaluating their future employment plans to adjust to job insecurity. Reporter Melissa Perry has the story. In addition to taking the lives of over 400,000 Americans, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a devastating impact on the nation's economy. And many Northwestern students, like Albert Coe, are feeling mixed emotions about entering the workforce during this unique recession. So I've definitely like heard that it's kind of hard out there. On one hand, I've accepted that um, it's the situation, the environment that I'm going to be graduating into. So there's not that there's not that much sense of like worrying about it over much because there's not much I can do about it. All I have to do is just go into that um, environment and then try to uh, make the best out of it. However, um, it is something that I do worry about. Northwestern professor and economist Hans Schwant has done extensive research on the long-term impacts that recessions can have on young workers, and he encourages college graduates to remain flexible in their employment search. If you start in a difficult economic time like this one, and you, you, know, you, you might not immediately start at the, the, the perfect firm that you envisioned for yourself or like, you know, where you would end up in normal times right away, but with some additional flexibility and like job hopping and you know look look being on the lookout for opportunities and the natural path would be to get to those places but it might just be you know take take one or two step uh, additional steps due to the pandemic some northwestern students like senior theater major Maddie Burton have started to reimagine what their futures may look like this journey I'll be making now is one we all must make I have sort of a weird academic career, right? I'm a theater and neuroscience double major. And the plan was always take a gap year, but you're going to medical school right after that gap year. And I think because this year has really forced me to be so academically focused and not really um, being able to engage in uh things in theater or socially and you know I'm 21 years old and I want to do all that stuff but the pandemic has sort of forced me to not do that I think I probably want to take a little bit more time off um, before medical school and really try the theater thing I definitely am looking forward to a little bit of catch-up time of a social life in my early 20s. Dr. Natalie Shook a professor from the University of Connecticut 
recently published the results of a study that found that job insecurity and financial concern during this pandemic were correlated with poor mental health. As the study's results show, the financial impact of this pandemic has long-lasting and complex consequences for millions of Americans. We go through or look historically at periods of recession. Um, we tend to see right higher levels of psychological distress. I think, yeah, you know, if we can look at different age groups, we will see um, varying levels of anxiety and stress and, and for good reasons, right? As far as what are, what are our future prospects? Kira Neary is a fifth year Northwestern student studying European literature and voice and performance. As an aspiring opera singer, Kira says that this pandemic has been difficult for not only herself, but many of her friends in the industry. I've said a couple times to some friends of mine, it just feels very pointless being an opera singer right now because everything is closed. Everything is um, just stopped. The, the entire the whole industry has just ground to a halt. I'm glad that I'm still a student. I have some friends who were just starting out, just starting to kind of be able to make an, an income from singing and performing and everything just as soon as everything stopped they had nothing else to do there was no real safety net there despite the tragic impact that this pandemic has had on the economy professor schwant is still optimistic of a swift economic recovery once the spread of covid 19 is controlled while maddie is looking forward to taking the big stage once again the fact that this is driven by a pandemic is probably really good news the reason why we have the recession it's because we can't leave the house, right? Because we can't have, we have to have social distancing. It's not because anything was wrong about the economy. Yeah, so I think in general, things, um, yeah, there, there is, there's a lot of reason to, to be hopeful and optimistic. Do you feel like you know, I'm not alone in the desire for community after all of this and for in-person experiences after all of this? I'm constantly reminding myself that, you know, the 1918 epidemic, um, brought on the, the booming slash roaring 20s. There is this sort of precedent for um, real artistic, uh, just a, a real artistic renaissance after a time of such isolation and illness and just darkness. Um, so I am hopeful that theaters will come back. I just hope that we get to that point where I can then say, this is where it's going to go. Thank you for listening. This is Melissa Perry, WNUR News. Finally, here's Linus Holler with a wintry weather report. Chicago is under a winter storm warning by the National Weather Service since 5 p.m. today and until 4 o'clock Tuesday afternoon. By the time this segment airs, there will almost certainly be several inches of snow on the ground in the Chicago metro area already, just in time for the evening commute. Heavy snowfall combined with gale force winds, snow drifts, icy conditions, and big waves on the lake will make for dangerous driving conditions and might result in some power outages. Stay especially vigilant near Lake Michigan, where winds will be strongest, waves up to 12 feet high might cause flooding and icy roads, and where the lake effect will result in the highest snow totals tonight. Now for the forecast. Wintry weather will persist throughout the night and for much of Tuesday with snowfall continuing. We might see totals of up to 10 inches or 25 centimeters 
by the time the low pressure system moves out to the east. Temperatures on Tuesday are expected to stay around or just below freezing and it will be continue to be quite breezy with some gale force gusts, especially near the lake. It is still unclear how long the snow will linger over northeastern Illinois, but the latest models expect it to stay in the area for Wednesday too. Temperatures will start dropping in the second half of the week with temps staying a few degrees below freezing on Wednesday. Thursday and Friday will bring sunnier but also colder weather. Temperatures at night will be properly chilly with lows of around 14 Fahrenheit or minus 10 degrees Celsius and highs staying well below freezing as well. I'm Linus Huller with the weather for WNUR News. That's all for the WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news updates and reports, follow us on Twitter at WNUR News. You can listen to these and other stories of the day on our Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and online at WNUR.org. On behalf of our producer, Angelina Campanile, reporters Alex Harrison, Angelina Campanile, Melissa Perry, and Linus Holler, as well as all of us here at WNUR News, I'm Helen Bradshaw. Thank you for joining us on our first broadcast of 2021. Now, back to scheduled programming.